Hey folks, Brian Cook, your host here with a couple of words from our sponsor, T-Fury. T-Fury is the original pop culture t-shirt destination, selling unique designs every day since 2008. You can snag their shirts for only 24 hours starting at midnight. Missing a shirt from the past and want to get it again? Head to the T-Fury Gallery, where you can buy some old designs still in print and vote on others to come back from the dead. Every two to four weeks, T-Fury add more designs to their gallery, so be sure to keep an eye out for the return of your favorite shirts. T-Fury shirts cover all your favorite topics and fandoms. They've got everything from gaming, sci-fi, anime, TV, movies, pop culture, and more. Their t-shirts change daily, so check back as often as you'd like. Also, don't forget about the T-Fury After Hours sale. If you missed the day's shirts by only a little, they keep the sale going into the wee hours of the morning just for you. Check out tfury.com slash Nerdist and see what today's shirt is all about. Now entering Nerdist.com. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Competitive Erotic Fan Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Cook, and you've found the internet's number one most trusted source for Muppet boners and horny loners. Today we've got round one from a show recorded February 18th, 2014 at the Nerdmelt Theater in Los Angeles, featuring Giovanni Lanayo, Rick Wood, Andrew Solmson, Laura Crawford, and Mark Agee, reading pieces they wrote in advance based upon topics of their choosing. Enjoy. Please welcome your first round one comic who's brought a prepared piece this evening, Mr. Rick Wood, ladies and gentlemen. Rick Wood. Hey, Brian. Hey, buddy. Hey, it's the Andy Griffith Show. <laughs> uh, for rights reasons, and this is a podcast, I cannot continue whistling the song. But uh, it was made before your parents were born, so you don't remember it anyway. Here we go. The late spring sun shone happily down on the sleepy little town of Mayberry. Opie Taylor made his way to the local fishing hole where his father had promised to meet him. When Opie arrived at the fishing hole, there weren't a soul in sight. Pa said he'd meet me here. I wonder what could be keeping him, Opie wondered aloud. Back at the Taylor household, Sheriff Andy was running a bit late. Golly, that is a mighty fine piece of pie you've got there, Aunt B. <laughs> The sheriff proclaimed. <laughs> See something you like, do you? Aunt B asked him in a sultry tone. Yes, ma'am, I believe I do. I could smell it all the way back at the station. <laughs> Got my mouth a-water and something awful just a-thinking about it. Barney's, too. I invited him to come get a piece with me. But he had to run off to Goober Server Station to get the squad car filled and the fluids changed. Aunt B removed the peach pie from its place cooling on the windowsill and offered Andy a slice. He eagerly devoured every last crumb and sat at the kitchen table with a satisfied look on his face. My oh my, Aunt B, you sure do know how to leave a man satisfied. It pleased Aunt B to see him so happy, but she herself was not satisfied and had not been for quite some time. <laughs> Barney Fife's squad car wasn't the only thing in town that needed its fluids looked after. <laughs> When Barney pulled into the service station, Gomer Pyle came running out of the garage, anxious to greet him. Howdy, Barney. Sure is good to see you here. Well, it's nice to see you too, Gomer. <laughs> it... <laughs> is your cousin Goober around? Now, I'm afraid not. 
He ran over to the Bluebird to pick us up some lunch, but I can help you out till he gets back. Barney was expecting Goober to be there. They had made arrangements after all. And although Gomer could change the oil and fill the tank just fine, there was one dipstick that only Goober knew how to check. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose it'd be fine if you got her started while we wait for your cousin to get back. Yes, sir. Gomer eagerly set about the business of tending to the squad car. Back at the fishing hole, Opie was getting bored with waiting for his father to show up. He stared down at his rod. He was still just a young boy and hadn't baited his own pole yet. (laughs) But he was growing up, and it was time he learned to be a man. I'll treat it like swimming, he thought. The best way to learn is to dive right in. Besides, I've seen the older boys do it a bunch of times. He gently held the soft, wriggly worm between his thumb and index finger. It was a little slimy and awkward, but felt good to take matters into his own hands. Within minutes, Opie's rod was ready, and in the cool waters of the lake, he watched his bobber go up and down for what seemed like an eternity. Fishing sure is boring when there's no one to talk to, he said to absolutely no one at all. He was a little bit hurt that his father had blown him off but the disappointment was eased by the pride he felt from learning to do something on his own. Still, the boredom was unbearable. I think I'll go behind that tree and jerk off until Pa shows up. That's always exciting. (laughs) Aunt B had had enough of jerking off behind trees. She was just plain sick of it. It seemed that every time she brought a man around, Andy would just chase him off. Until recently, she never understood why, but just the other day it occurred to her that he was acting out of jealousy. At first it seemed strange that a man would want to fuck his own auntie, but after some thought, she concluded it wasn't unheard of, especially around these parts. (laughs) Andy, come into the bedroom. I've got something I need your help with. All right, Aunt B, but I've got to get down to the fishing hole to meet Opie, Andy said as he raised himself from his seat at the kitchen table, the remnants of Aunt B's warm gooey pie still smeared on the plate. Andy entered the bedroom to the sight of Aunt Bee's heaving naked breasts. They looked like two giant biscuits smothered in country gravy and melting down into her lumpy mashed potato body. (laughs) Veins sprawled like a road map beneath her pale, wrinkled skin. The thought of sexual congress with his own aunt was revolting, but Andy couldn't deny that this was pretty fucking hot. (laughs) He tore off his uniform and stood before her. Now I see why you don't need to carry a gun, she teased. Come over here and hammer me with that nightstick of yours like I'm some sort of filthy hippie. (laughs) Andy pounced on his dear Aunt B. She gasped, then chortled, then gasped again, every nerve ending on fire down below. Andy hunched over her like a leprechaun clutching gold. They writhed and twisted, spinning the gingham sheets into their own private fuck cocoon. The muffled grunts and screams that escaped reverberated through the Taylor home. Neighbors would later describe the sound as something akin to a fuck fest in a slaughterhouse. <laughs> you ever made a cream pie before, Aunt B? Andy yelled out as he approached Climpax. <laughs> Why, yes, I have. Once on a trip to Boston, I made a half a dozen or so cream pies in just one evening. But right now, I want a Mayberry cream pie so grand it would win at the state fair. <laughs> Nearly as soon as she'd made the request, Andy filled it to the brim. (laughs) Well, the car looks to be in pretty good shape, Barney, but I think you need a lube job. 
Barney squirmed in his penny loafers. He wanted to mash his big goofy face into Gummer's big goofy face and tumble into the back of the squad car for a little police brutality. <laughs> but he also didn't want to overpay another mechanic for service he didn't really need. Now, are you sure I need a lube job? Because I could swear that Goober just did oil and lube on this thing last Tuesday. Gomer positioned himself behind Barney and began to massage his shoulders. Not the car, you silly goose. I mean you. You're so tense. <laughs> now, Gomer, don't you think this is a little inappropriate? Barney squeaked out as his loins caught fire. Uh, you think I don't know what you and Cousin Goober have been up to? Gomer whispered into his ear. Now it's my turn to be your full-service mechanic. <laughs> Gomer grabbed a plastic tarp from the shelf and spread it over the floor of the shop, then dumped a good amount of 30-weight oil onto it. <laughs> the two men wrestled each other to the ground and out of their clothes. Don't go easy on me. I'm leaving for the U.S. Marine Corps in about a month, and I want to be ready when I get there. <laughs> they slipped and slithered in and out of one another and all across the garage floor. Soon they both lay there exhausted in their postcoital state, and that's when Goober walked in. He shrieked and dropped the takeout lunch from the Bluebird Diner onto the ground. Barney, Gomer, how could you? Oh, I'm sorry, Goober, Barney stammered. It just sort of happened is all. Goober began to remove his shirt in frustration. Fine, just do me too. Barney looked pitifully up at Goober from his place in the oil. I'm sorry, Goober, I can't. I know I look like a real six shooter, but I'm afraid I only had the one round in me. <laughs> From his place atop the roof of the barber shop, Floyd watched it all unfold. My, it is a busy day in Mayberry indeed. A most busy day, he said as he tightened the belt around his neck. <laughs> Rick Wood. Nice job, buddy. Keep it going for Andrew Salmson. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Andrew, and I've done a horrible thing to Gilligan's Island. I'm sorry. <laughs> so this is how it ends, Marianne thought to herself as her eyes ran over the sisal fiber ropes she had used to tie down the professor and Ginger. This is how it ends, she said out loud. The professor laughed quietly and then resumed straining against the ropes, the beads of sweat forming and pouring off his naked body onto the dirt floor of the hut where she had them both staked out, limbs spread eagle. Ginger just narrowed her eyes into that haughty expression that Marianne knew so well, the one that Ginger flashed at her whenever a man turned his eyes away from Marianne towards her. It had taken a long time to get to here, such a very long time. So much suffering, so many coconut cream pies. There were distractions, the lovers' quarrels that rang out from the skipper in Gilligan's hut, ceasing only long enough to be replaced with heavy grunts of passion. The arguments were meaningless over minor slights and little errors, and they would escalate and escalate until Gilligan would cry out, enough, and the skipper would beg Gilligan to forgive him in their special way. <laughs> then the grunting would start. One night she couldn't help herself, and Marianne looked into their hut and saw the skipper sideways in the hammock, legs akimbo, as his little buddy swung him back and forth with all his might, first away from and then back onto his erect penis, each swing eliciting a, a profound <clears throat> sound from the old salt and a high-pitched me-me-me-me-me sound from his penetrator. I can't believe we thought that was snoring for so long, Marianne marveled. <laughs> then recalled the way it had ended. 
The pair of them hadn't come to eat breakfast, and by lunchtime the rest of the castaways had gotten worried. So the group went to their hut and were greeted with a horrifying tableau. The skipper's naked bulk was on the ground, and Gilligan rested on top of him, his genitals still knocked in the skipper's rectum by rigor mortis. <laughs> Both were dead, stone dead. The remaining castaways dug a deep hole and gently placed the bodies locked in an eternal embrace at the bottom of it. The professor said some words of comfort, and the five of them looked at each other and finally exploded with the laughter they'd been holding in for some time. <laughs> Thurston and Lovey were the next to go. It had been fairly obvious that their relationship had been sexless for some time, but what had not been obvious was what they had replaced it with. Then one day, not long after the skipper and Gilligan had been buried, Thurston arrived at the communal table as, as put together as always, ascot firmly in place, but smelling strongly of urine. <laughs> no one commented on it, but it was definitely urine. <laughs> and it was definitely Lovey's, as her fondness for the asparagus that grew wild on the nearby hill betrayed. <laughs> then one day, they too were late to the breakfast table, and Ginger, Marianne, and the professor had gone to their hut and found them, naked and dead. Lovey had keeled over where she stood, nude, legs apart, and Thurston had been kneeling below her to receive her yellow rain. He died with his eyes open, covered in piss, <laughs> and looking as proximately happy as Marianne had ever known him to be. <laughs> as Ginger and Marianne commiserated, the professor just looked tired. She'd known a side of the professor, Roy, she corrected herself, that none of the others had, and he had taught her something about herself she hadn't known. Late at night, on that lonely island, the two of them had come to an understanding. He needed her not just as a woman, but as a submissive, and she discovered that she needed it too. The language he used to discuss their lovemaking was foreign to her, but the results touched some part of her that needed to be dominated, and the orgasms she had under his cruel hand were far superior to the slapdash attentions of the schoolboys of her youth in Kansas. <laughs> so she let herself be used and reveled in the pleasure and perversity of it. But then the thing with Ginger happened. He had told her that Ginger would be joining them and that she was also to be a slave to him. And Marianne realized that could never be. Her pride wouldn't let it happen. Ginger could have her haughty, insecure grandeur, but she wouldn't let Ginger finally replace her in this. So the two of them would have to die. She baked another special coconut cream pie with the nightshade juice she had made, this time enough to sedate, not to kill. And in their selfishness, they never noticed she ate none of it. The night came, and the nightshade hit them as she had planned, as their love had started. They were all naked, and then the two of them slowly slipped from consciousness. She tied them up. She looked at them again, spread out, submissive to her. She raised the knife. <laughs> Sexy. Andrew Salmson, ladies and gentlemen. Give me over Laura Crawford. Hi. How's it going? Um, I wrote my piece, it's a science fiction, erotic fan fiction, and the subject is Netflix, so I hope you guys enjoy it. <laughs> Good evening. It's February 19th, 2017, and I'm Anderson Cooper. In tech news, after much anticipation, the CEO of Netflix has unveiled a groundbreaking new feature of the programming. Premium users will soon be able to download their accounts into custom-designed sex robots. Once programmed with the user's film and television preferences, the Netflix Pleasure Bot is able to predict and cater to the user's unique sexual desires. Pre-orders for the program have been overwhelming and reviewers are declaring it a pretty good way to waste a Saturday afternoon you meant to spend running errands. 
Although sex robots have been available to uh, world leaders since the 1970s, this... <laughs> we all know that's true. This will be the first to combine ultra-lifelike avatars and know just how much toddlers and tiaras you're actually watching. In response, Redbox has revealed their own program, a fleet of red-haired prostitutes that will offer hand jobs outside of grocery stores. Before filing for bankruptcy, Blockbuster even tested a similar program, but with PG-13 action and extreme late fees, it never took off. In science news, Jessica Chambers shut down her iPad and stood to close the velvet curtains in her really classy one-bedroom hover apartment. She began brushing her sandy blonde hair and tightened the belt on her silk robe. As a single executive assistant at Netflix, Jessica is one of the first females to receive her pleasure bot download. Jessica marveled at her avatar as the program loaded. He was everything she had requested and more, like Paul Rudd and Ewan McGregor had made a butt baby. <laughs> yeah. All six, two of them, cut and slender in a suit straight out of Mad Men, appeared to be sleeping on her sofa. Rest up, robo-stud. You've got a big night ahead of you. Jessica slid next to her bot on the sofa. It was the culmination of a long seduction. At 14, she felt the first rush of excitement, that little red envelope waiting for her in the mail. The tease was the best part, holding it, the paper all waxy and beat up in her hands, unfurling the sticky flap and fingering the disc hole. <laughs> Awaiting the hours of enjoyment that would soon be at hand, years passed and Jessica had blossomed into a wicked hot chick with an underwhelming sex life. But in the wee hours in the morning, Netflix lit up her face and warmed her pelvis via an old laptop. Did any being know her secret passions and guilty pleasures as well as Netflix? Jessica Chambers was about to find out. Bleep, bleep. Jessica's laptop bleep, bleeped. Hey, uh... <laughs> A message flashed on the screen. She scrambled to read it. Download finished. Oh, yeah, boo. Cough slightly to awaken your pleasure bot and enjoy. <coughs> the pleasure bot awoke and stretched his thick, ropey guns. He held her hand. Jessica, hi, is this your account? <laughs> yes, Netflix, it's me. Excellent. Well, Jessica, I'm going to go by Nick for tonight, and it's lovely to meet you. Would you like to browse for a while first? Jessica blushed and smiled. Just the sound of his voice made her do kegels on the spot. <laughs> she sat next to him. You know, few women combine incredible beauty with interest in British sitcoms from the 1990s. <laughs> I like the IT crowd, too. <laughs> Jessica's voice trailed off as she felt up his ripped abs and bike messenger thighs. <laughs> yeah, they're hard. <laughs> Nick's nimble fingers teased her hard pink nips under her robe. His mouth, programmed to 98 degrees, sucked on her creamy neck skin. Jessica stroked his wavy chest hair and worked her way down to his belt buckle. Mm, so what am I going to be working with for the next couple hours? Her palm spread over his crotch. Nick froze. She felt nothing. Um, so what's... Um, whoops, something went wrong. Internet connection problem. Please check your internet connection and refresh. What? God, I'm so sorry. This never happens to me, I swear. I just, I'm sorry. 
I just need a little time to finish loading. Jessica rushed to her modem. I'm sorry, it's my fault. My Wi-Fi kind of cuts out sometimes. I share with my neighbors, and they're Russian, and they don't always pay the bill. <laughs> it's okay. Is there something I could do? Should I rub your back? I could use my mouth. Is there some way I could turn you on and off? No, don't. If you touch anything, I'm just going to have to start loading all over again. It's this whole big thing. I'm just going to have to... I have to sit here for a few minutes and clear my head. You might want to go get some water or go to the bathroom. Jessica returned to the living room a few minutes later, munching on a chocolate-covered pretzel. Nick had lit candles and was relaxing in only basketball shorts, rubbing a tent in his crotch that could house the Lakota Nation. Her robe dropped and she revealed a set of dope knockers with juicy nips <laughs> and a really cool shaved pussy. <laughs> Let's hit play, baby. Next thing you know, Thompson Twins was playing on her stereo and Jessica and Nick were viciously dry humping on her area rug. But Jessica was confused. I'm sorry, where is this going? Oh, I thought you'd want the John Hughes package to start. Some sulking, making out, and dry humping. Then we go into something, you know, a little more motorized, like plane trains and automobiles. Nick's nimble fingers rubbed on her clit with a steady, vibrating pulse of a Hitachi. He was laying out some deep, wet tongue kisses, and his meat hammer bruised her thigh. <laughs> Though her pussy was steady, dripping juicy, she was distracted. <laughs> mm, well, how do you like intense foreign drama? He tried out a deep Irish brogue. Uh, I like it sometimes. It's okay. I uh, just you like it sometimes. Uh, okay. What about probing documentaries? <laughs> she felt his thumb shoot into her balloon tight butthole. <laughs> balloon tie tight butthole. Sorry. Whoa, slow down. What about something based on Larry Sanders' show? I used to love that. He was streaming all the time. It's really fast paced and fun. Can we do something like that? Programmer is no, program is no longer available for inspirational sex moves. But you might like something more absurd and heartfelt. What about scrubs? <laughs> now I'm dry. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I was using it as a backup plan, but you did binge watch it when you had the flu. Keeping up with the Kardashians? Yes. <laughs> Jessica's reddish-purple twat slammed on Nick's ramrod while he made catty insults about her clothes, weight, and hair. <laughs> she hated herself for loving it. His awesome robo-dong stayed hard for hours, and Jessica came like a fountain. Her, her thighs and ass burned with the fire of a thousand Runyon Canyon hikes, but still she rode. She didn't give a fuck. She just wanted to keep bouncing on that D. <laughs> But was that it? No, she wanted more. I want lost. Nick turned Jessica around and began hitting it doggy style with tremendous grace and excitement. His energy, his vitality, his creativity couldn't be matched. He pounded very furiously. Every beat promised more coming. But at the last moment, he shoved his dick in her ass. <laughs> All nine gooey bot inches. Fuck you, Netflix. <laughs> Jessica came and collapsed in a heap, panting like a dog locked in a hot car. Nick wiped her down with a towel. Nick, I realized something tonight. What? Sex isn't about having a hot body, electronic or flesh. It's not about complex algorithms to predict the pace of penal thrusting. It's about two people, two souls who make a connection. It's about innocence and vulnerability and, hey, do you want me to just go down on you while you watch season two of Cheers or what? <laughs> 
Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> okay, if you fall asleep, I'll just pause. <laughs> Thank you guys. And that has been Sex with Netflix. Thank you guys. Laura Crawford. Give it go for Mark Agee. What's up, Brian? Yo. Hey guys, uh, so I grew up on a farm in Southern Virginia and growing up, my favorite show was the Dukes of Hazard. So that's what I wrote about. Uh, just so you know, I'm not racist. You show my other best TV friends were the Fresh Prince and Good Times. Um, this is an episode of Dukes of Hazard titled Going Down South, colon, this is a euphemism. <laughs> they just some good old boy. All right. Uh, <laughs> Open on a hilltop in a picturesque meadow that's silent until the General Lee bursts into frame, engine roaring. As it goes airborne, Bo and Luke Duke unleash a yee-haw that makes you believe the South could rise again. If you ignore the fact that the Hazard County economy can only su apparently support dirt roads. <laughs> the sun glints off the Confederate flag on the roof of the blaze orange 1969 Dodge Charger, a car so manly it should have a mustache and truck nuts. Second, seconds later, Sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane makes the same jump, except he punctuated, punctuates it with a fearful, a goo goo goo. He chases the Duke boys, that's a catchphrase, you know that. Um, <laughs> he chases the Duke boys across the bridge, but they're already speeding through a barn for some reason. They don't get far, though. They're about to jump a creek, that's creek for selfish. Uh, but their escape is blocked out of nowhere by Roscoe's deputy slash even more comical relief, Enos. You know how grocery stores give mentally handicapped people menial jobs as outreach? That's Enos, except he has a gun. <laughs> Bo screeches the general to a halt. Roscoe slams in his brakes behind them, boxing them in while accidentally pulling his hat down over his eyes confusedly. Bo and Luke slide out of the windows of the general. The doors are welded together because it's a race car, which you already know because you're six-year-old me. And you get up at seven every Saturday to watch these reruns in your pajamas while your dad's already on his third beer and tomato juice. <laughs> Bo and Luke slide out of the general. Well, 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 Roscoe says, stepping out of his cruiser. Boss Hogg exits the passenger seat. If it ain't Bo and Luke Duke. Boss and Roscoe had been in a hurry to get to town, but can never resist the opportunity to bust the Dukes. What's the deal, Roscoe, says Bo Duke, his blonde locks touching but only teasing the thin layer of polyester on his broad, toned, and tan shoulders. Luke's beside him with a shock of brown chest hair peeking out from between two pearl snaps. His jeans were so tight he didn't know if they were actually blue or if his asphyxiated thighs were showing through an acid wash. <laughs> Daisy Duke climbs out of the back seat. She says, who cares? Women don't matter on this show. <laughs> we didn't caught you boys speeding, Boss Hog says, and we both know you ain't got no license. That's a parole violation in the great state of Georgia. You see, the Dukes are on parole for running moonshine. Uh, this is why they're not allowed to own guns, so they get out of jams using bows and arrows tipped with dynamite. Um, <laughs> though you already know this backstory because your six-year-old me tuning this, turning this story uh, show way too loud to cover up your mom whisper yelling, uh, whisper yelling at your dad about drinking in the morning. <laughs> though it is his day off, so they both have good points. You know I'm the law in this particular county in this here state of Georgia, Boss Hog says. They say Georgia a lot in the Dukes of Hazard. Georgia is the R-less way they say Georgia in Georgia because they love the N-word so much they won't say any letter in it unless they're saying the N-word. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe instead of a third strike, Roscoe says, you'd rather go to third base, he says, staring lustily at Luke's he cleavage. 
as he unzips his police pants. As the justice of peace in this here Hazlitt County, I offer you this reprieve, Boss Hogg says, rubbing himself through his white linen suit bottoms. The action freezes. We hear a folksy Waylon Jennings say, well, ain't this a pickle of a situation? <laughs> Act two, the Dukes are faced with a choice. Suck one cock as free men or spend a decade sucking them as inmates. <laughs> the cousins sink to their knees as Roscoe removes his gun belt and drops it to the dirt. We discover why his last name is Coltrane when he unleashes a flesh locomotive that's undoubtedly wrecked a few cabooses. <laughs> Bo, Bo, the youngest, is first to accept Roscoe's semi-tumescent member into his gaping maw like a baby bird. He's never been with a man before, but just like Uncle Jesse always said, anything worth doing is worth doing well. The country farm boy work ethic has no specific loophole for dick sucking. <laughs> Bo passes Luke's Roscoe's dick, still grasping the shaft. The older Luke's a little more reticent. Not because it's his first time, but because he swore the last time would be the last time. <laughs> Too much moonshine and moonlight make teenage boys in a graduating class of six who happen to be all dudes do strange things. <laughs> Boss doesn't join. He prefers to watch. Daisy's mortified. A man pleasuring another man? This is the kind of thing that happens in big cities like Marietta or DeKalb. <laughs> She turns to leave, breaking into a run, but Enos blocks her. He's always had a crush on her, which you already know because you've seen every episode. You're six-year-old me. <laughs> Your dad just slammed the door and sped away with tires screeching on, dirt, on a dirt road driveway, just like the Dukes. It was awesome. <laughs> Daisy's always been aware of Enos' crush. She's been curious. We all know the mentally handicapped are blessed with huge cocks. <laughs> with penis size being inversely proportional in intellect. Side note, this is why Stephen Hawking can't make a marriage work. <laughs> Thrice divorced. Uh, <laughs> hey, Daisy. Enos brushes her cheek. Then he grabs her by the hair and bends her over his police cruiser. Daisy's turned on, but she doesn't want to do this. Or does she? Enos is blasting through the sometimes thin line between consensual and otherwise. Before she can decide if she's into it, he's rolled over her jean shorts and is inside of her. She wasn't quite wet yet, but it's pretty sticky during Georgia summers. <laughs> Back over by the General Lee, Roscoe yells, what's your safe word? Before Bo and Luke can answer, he says, it doesn't matter. <laughs> he grabs his gun belt off the ground and wraps it so tight around Bo's neck he can feel the grain of the leather through the tip of his dick through Bo, Bo's voice box. <laughs> With a combination of the leather, the double blowjob, and the cop power trip, Roscoe knows he's not lasting long. He has just enough time to plan a climactic cuckoo. <laughs> he comes so hard that Bo can only catch some of it. Boss, for his part, is already released onto the ground just thinking about that orphanage he foreclosed on in episode 12 of season 3. <laughs> Enos had no hope to last. What with the frantic kegels from Daisy's climax, her body betraying her wishes, he buries his seed deep inside her. The action freezes. Not pulling out is no way to treat a lady. You're goddamn right, Waylon Jennings. <laughs> Act 3. Bo takes Roscoe's load and snowballs into Luke's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't understand the South at all, do you? All right. Um, Luke rolls it around in his tongue, the sight of which captivates, <laughs> the sight of which captivates Ross and Roscoe and Boss like it's a cum lava lamp. In the distance, we hear the hazard clock tower start dinging, ding, ding, ding. Bo used a distraction to grab the keys out of Roscoe's ride and toss them far out into the meadow. Wait a minute, Boss Hog yells, it's noon. You see, Roscoe and Boss had just foreclosed on a poor farmer's property. 
And it was the last link in a chain they needed to strip mine the whole county. Typical uh, Dukes of Hazard plot. Uh, but the deadline was noon to get the paperwork to the courthouse, and they were distracted by blowjobs and Daisy's deer-like haunches. This had been the Duke plan all along. <laughs> Yeehaw, Bo exclaims as he slides into the driver's side window. Luke stands up and spits Roscoe's load onto his own windshield. That ought to slow him down. <laughs> he slides across the hood of the general, boots first, and hops into his seat. Daisy Mule kicks Enos off her aforementioned haunches, then dives into the driver's side window of the general as it passes by. The Dukes laugh as they speed away. Looking back, they see Boss beating Roscoe with his cowboy hat. <laughs> <laughs> He's seen the show. Uh, the Dukes had once again saved the day for Hazard County. They jumped the crick, yell yeehaw, and hit their signature horn. Unfortunately, Enos' sex with Daisy had been unprotected. They'd have to drive her to Atlanta in three weeks for an abortion. <laughs> and 21 years later, that abortion grew up to be the 2005 Dukes of Hazard remake starring Johnny Knoxville and Sean William Scott. Thank <laughs> <Hey>, you, guys. <laughs> Mark Agee. Now, I would have thought in the South they'd have a different term from snowballing because there's no, there's no snow. I would have guessed country gravying. That would have been my... Anyway, uh, keep it going for your final round one competitor, Giovanni Lanaio, ladies and gentlemen. The midday sun was sweltering hot as it beat down on the endless ocean. Another tally etched deep into the hull of the lifeboat marked 98 long days at sea. In the lifeboat, a 400-pound Bengal tiger was being cautiously watched <laughs> by a skinny Indian boy. <laughs> Pai's life had become one of intense longing. He would lose himself in fantasy, imagining a mouthful of fresh water dripping from his quivering lips, a sweet morsel of food on his tongue and then sliding down his throat and filling his hungry body. Pai thought of home, of India, its girthy peninsula jutting into the warm, wet Arabian Sea. Whoa, the, this lifeboat wasn't the only wood on the water. <laughs> Pi pondered what wonders must lie beneath a woman's draping sari. What were they hiding under there? A lotus flower? No, better. What would it feel like to lift that fabric gateway and enter a woman? Maybe warm like a bowl of masala dal, creamy and textured with lentils. <laughs> or crisp on the outside with a soft potato center, her beautiful samosa just the faintest bit gritty with savory spices. <laughs> Whatever it felt like, Pai felt sure it was glorious. But fantasizing about punani naan and furry curry <laughs> was only making him more desperate. Pai prayed fervently to Vishnu, god of sustenance, for help. Please, Lord Vishnu, please. I'm dying, Pai pleaded. He pictured Vishnu's four blue arms dancing midair as the deity gyrated on top of him. No, Pai stopped himself. Focus! He transferred his prayer to Krishna. Krishna would come to his rescue with a bounty of white cows. The god would see Pai and transfixed would spit the universe from his mouth to make room. Pai could hear the sitar and the mooing of sacred cows in a wild song as Krishna played Ma Pai's mahogany flute. Ah! Pai yelled. Why are all the gods so hot? <laughs> ah, Ganesh. Yes, the fat-bellied god with an elephant head. Not hot. I'll pray to Ganesh. Divine Ganesh, why don't you stop being the remover of obstacles and start being the remover of those pants? 
Oh, it's no use! <laughs> Pi cried out in frustration. Young Pi had no food, no water, and no idea what to do with this rock-hard teenage boy boner. Pi knew everything about elephants and tigers, but jack shit about birds and bees. Even racked with heat exhaustion, Pi's teen peen was alert and ready, like a meerkat who just heard a sound. Hmm? <laughs> but what could he do? A breath of wind aroused the boat, sliding a flare gun to Pi's fingertips. He looked at the wide barrel of the flare gun and wondered, what was the circumference over diameter of his dick? <laughs> Pretty sure it was 3.1, fuck. <laughs> In a lust-fueled autopilot, Pi thrust his dick into the barrel of the flare gun and slid the hot metal up and down the shaft of his Taj Mahal. In that rusty love tunnel, Pi felt like a pumping piston in a powerful fuck machine. Just having his dick enveloped felt like a marriage arranged in heaven. <laughs> Everything with an opening got a taste of young Bollywood. The armholes of a life jacket, an empty carton of old sea crackers, a bailing cup with some seasickness still in it. Jesus. <laughs> he was like India with no caste system. Nothing was untouchable. <laughs> As Pi defiled an ore holder, he imagined aligning Vishnu's chakras with his cock. Thank you, Lord Vishnu, Pi called. And like a miracle, a flying fish banged headfirst into the inside of the boat. He was met with a dilemma. Eat it or fuck it, eat it or fuck it, eat it or fuck it. <laughs> Pi fucked that fish into oblivion. Mmm, <laughs> paella. Richard Parker, the tiger, had fallen asleep, exhausted from watching this weird kid not come or grow facial hair. <laughs> the tiger let out a long yawn and licked his hairy lips before his jaw fell slack, his mouth open as he slept. <laughs> what the fuck was that? Cause it kinda looked like pussy wanna get poached. <laughs> Okay, Jaiho, set a course for Bangalore, stops in the Pacific Rim job. Necessity had transformed Pi into a new beast, a fuck beast who no longer feared. His eyes said to the tiger, this is my jungle book, Shere Khan. Time you start bouncing on this dick like Tigger getting stuffed like Hobbs. <laughs> With fire in his eyes and fish on his dick, Pi stepped into Richard Parker's territory. The tiger's eyes snapped open and he was on his feet. Pi froze and gazed deep into the eyes of the tiger, his companion and partner, and saw everything they had survived together. And there, saw the depth of true love. Their love, which overcame all that... Richard Parker swatted Pi's head with his paw in a motion like a windshield wiper, knocking Pi to the floor. Then he turned and sprayed his jungle cat piss into Pi's face, reiterating the breach of territory. Cause him's a tiger. <laughs> Pi laid in a heap, gangly and tangled, with an arm around his back, a knee in one ear, and his erection against his cheek. Fuck, wait, what? Starvation had reduced Pi's body to nothing but skin and boner, and folding himself in half was almost too easy. <laughs> Even starving, Pi had never fathomed the deliciousness of his own dick. As his climax swelled within him, a majestic whale leapt from the water and soared into the sky. 
Pie came and the sperm whale's splash was so colossal as it came down that thick white sea foam soaked everything in sight. It was an orgasm of power, euphoria, and award-winning CGI. <laughs> Sticky, happy, and no longer thirsty, Pie laid back in satisfaction, knowing this wasn't a metaphor for shit. <laughs> Giovanni Lanai, you can sit right there, Giovanni. Let's get everybody from round one back up. Let them hear it. Wherever they are, there's Mark. All right. So, you guys are going to be voting on a winner in just a second. Uh, first, I'm just going to remind you what everybody read. So, we started with Rick Wood with Andy Griffith, then Andrew Salmson with Gilligan's Island, Laura Crawford with Netflix, Mark Agee with Dukes of Hazard, and Giovanni Lanayo with Life of Pi. So, pick a favorite, vote with your applause, starting with Rick Wood, Andy Griffith. Andrew Salmson, Gilligan's Island. Laura Crawford, Netflix. Mark Agee, Dukes of Hazard. Giovanni Lanayo, Life of Pi. Your round one champion, Giovanni Lanayo, ladies and gentlemen. Better hear it. Big thanks to everybody from round one. Well, that does it for round one. To hear round two from this show, download episode 57 next week. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. It's a big help, as are positive comments. Negative comments can always be directed to the podcast Terrified with Dave Ross. Upcoming live shows include March 18th at Nerd Melton, L.A., March 22nd at the Blue Monk in Portland, Oregon, and May 7th at the Rendezvous Theater in Seattle. Stay tuned for details on Cromfest in Omaha, Austin Sketchfest, Limestone Comedy Fest in Bloomington, plus Chicago, Denver, and more. For more details, you can always join the competitive erotic fanfiction Facebook group or follow me on Twitter at Brian Cooking. See you next time. Now leaving Nerdist.com.